This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week is Nurses Week, a time for all of us to reflect on the contributions that nurses make to our society. During this important time of observance for one of our most valued professions and caring for those most in need, we invited Dr. Sherika Miller to join us for an important conversation. Dr. Miller is a Cal State University Fullerton nursing professor who teaches several nursing classes, including pediatrics, writing, research, mentoring. But she brings more into her classroom than just her vast knowledge and experience in nursing. Dr. Miller also shares the 12 years that she spent in the foster care system. This period left an indelible impression on her, and she decided that once she made it out of the foster care system, she would reach back out and help others. To that aim, she's become a national leader in helping nurses use their platform to advocate for vulnerable populations in the community. Casey Family Programs recently awarded Dr. Miller with the 2021 Casey Excellence Award, a national recognition for her work with foster youth in several organizations, including California Youth Connection. Dr. Miller is not only a nurse educator, renowned public speaker, and DEI strategist, She is a servant leader and advocate for the most vulnerable in our society. Well, let's now hear from Sherika Miller, PhD RN, as she joins us for a special Nurses Week edition of The Race to Value. Well, Dr. Miller, welcome to The Race to Value. We're so excited to have you on this week for Nurses Week. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I just realized it's Nurses Week, right? Duh. Yeah, such a great time and just so important, you know, for the profession. And I'm really excited about our conversation today. And I thought we would begin with your background story and how it helped you uh, find a calling to help transitional age foster youth. I mean, your experience with the child welfare system began at age six and you were placed in foster care and you spent the next 12 years in the foster care system. And your mother was a heroin addict throughout entire childhood and your father sold drugs, this instability in your childhood made you really determined to break the intergenerational cycle of disadvantage in your family. And you came to believe that education was a path to a better life. And upon graduating from Howard with a BS in nursing, you came back home to get custody of your siblings. And over time, you eventually had the opportunity to focus on your own self-actualization when your mother became sober and You then went on to get your master's degree from Cal State Long Beach and then received your PhD from UCLA. And your life right now, as I understand, is really focused on teaching, coaching, and mentoring others, which includes not only your service to future and current nurses, but also your work with current and former foster youth to self-advocate for policy changes that can promote a prosperous future. So I wanted to ask you if you could speak a little bit to your personal story of hardship to provide our listeners with a better understanding of how your early life experiences forged your life philosophy of serving others and speaking for those who can't. And then given this recent pandemic and how that's presented the biggest shock to the American economy since the Great Depression, how do you think COVID-19 has impacted family dynamics and economically vulnerable households and roiled the foster care system through the breakdown of crucial services for foster children during this time. I'd love to get your views on that as well. 
Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I had a pretty tumultuous childhood. And I think when you grow up in a in an environment where you lack autonomy, where others are making decisions on your behalf, you have no say, you go to these court hearings where people are speaking about you as if you're not there. I think that really instills this sort of fire, you know, or at least that's what it did for me. It instilled this sort of fire inside of me that once I got to that point where I was emancipated, that I would take complete control of my life and that I would then make my own decisions. And so I was really very determined uh, as soon as I emancipated out of the foster care system, I was very driven, very determined, uh, absolutely had some academic struggles just from not being prepared and missing quite a bit of school during foster care, mainly the times when I was back with my parents. So I bounced in and out of foster care. And the times I was back with my parents, we were living in motels and we were homeless and things like that. And so once I became a young adult, I was really determined to do things for myself. And I think that's how it initially started. I don't know if at that age, 18, 19, 20, I saw it as my bigger mission to serve others, but I was always involved and I was in big brother, big sister, and like mentoring kids all through undergrad. And so I think then once I graduated and became a nurse and got custody of my younger brother and sister is when I started to realize the impact that I could make as an advocate on the child welfare system. And I began to see that Although we all had these shared foster care experiences, you know, myself or these other adult, young adults that I would, I would be mentoring or, or advocating with, I saw that there was a difference in me. And I think that took a little while for me to really, you know, be comfortable with and be comfortable saying is that, you know, I had a different type of drive and ability to speak, you know, and that I could articulate things well and that others could not as well, but they, their, their voice was just as important. And so it was at that point when I was going in for my PhD, actually, and I had to formulate my research question. And I looked on the UCLA website and looked at the faculty and I saw, wow, there's a faculty that's a nurse with a doctorate that does foster care research. Uh, her name was Dr. Angela Hudson. She was a Black faculty, actually. And at first, that's all I was doing was looking for the Black faculty to mentor me, right? And so when I found her and I sat down with her, she helped me to see how I could use my platform as a nurse leader, nurse researcher, nurse advocate to impact changes in the child welfare system. So she got me involved with California Youth Connection, where I started mentoring, um, and that's really what I've been doing. And as you mentioned, with the pandemic, I think what makes it difficult is that in order to really connect and engage with foster youth, you really have to sort of show up in person. You have to maintain the closest connection that you can with them. And sometimes that connection is formed, you know, physically. Maybe they're looking at your tattoos, right? Or you never know what's going to be the connection. So I think COVID-19 not only affected our, our ability to connect with the youth in a more in a more physical manner, but also the weight of the pandemic on us as social workers, as educators, as advocates, as you know, child welfare researchers, we were also depressed and we were barely holding on and we were trying to engage with ourselves and our own families. And so I think that was probably the biggest challenge with COVID-19. Dr. Miller, I'm really inspired by your personal story and, and thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that. You know, it feels to me like when you share the pain of your past, your story can help others gain strength and feel less alone and, and start to believe that they'll be okay. And education must have been a game changer for you and that it transformed your life and broke the cycle of the poverty and despair within your family. And the promise of higher education is such a great opportunity for a fulfilling career, increased well-being, greater earning potential, and ultimately social mobility and a better life. And when fulfilled, the promise extends beyond an individual to their family and elevates the potential and the impact for generations to come. And with regard to the nursing profession, the workforce of tomorrow will ultimately be determined by advancing equity in higher education. And we need to overcome the historically low underrepresentation of populations enrolling in health profession schools and joining the health professions workforce. Ongoing reports of bias and discrimination in health professions learning environments 
and a continuing dearth of proven and replicable best practices to advance diversity. Dr. Miller, can you talk about how education has changed your life? And given that equity is the ultimate opportunity equalizer, how can we reinvigorate the promise of education for people of color? And what can institutions of higher learning do to eliminate barriers and allocate resources to provide equity and access and learning? Absolutely. I think education was really my ticket to freedom. Honestly, at first it was also housing because when you are emancipating out of foster care, my last placement was actually with family with a paternal grandmother. And she made it abundantly clear that once our checks stopped coming in, that we were gone. And so part of it was I didn't have anywhere else to really stay. And so college just made the most sense because it could give me, you know, a four-year bubble, or in my case was a five-year bubble. I think not only education itself, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that because I went to Howard and was in such a supportive environment. So as you know, Howard is a historically Black college or rather university. And because I was surrounded and saw a lot of representation all of my faculty were Black women who had PhDs. And so it just makes sense that I would then become a Black woman that had a PhD. And so as I look at now, uh, I'm in a faculty role. I'm actually chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion and engagement at my university. And so that is my job to create and sustain initiatives that increase our recruitment and retention of historically excluded populations, in which case are uh, Black nursing students, Hispanic nursing students, and male nursing students. And so I think it's, it's a couple of different things that need to happen. So the first and the, the, probably the lowest hanging fruit is, is the mentorship, right? These individuals need very intimate mentorship. And in addition to the mentorship, they need safe spaces. So at our university, we've created safe space groups for those three populations. Uh, and they're exclusive spaces that only, for example, Black nursing students, staff, and faculty can come. And it provides that more formal and informal mentorship, and also the opportunity to meet other healthcare professionals that look like them and that are doing other things in the world. And so that's been very successful for us. I think that universities have to do better at making sure their ideologies, their teaching practices are actually actively anti-racist. Right. And not just like, well, we value diversity here and we don't believe in racism, but rather, what are you doing to actively counteract racism and what are you doing to actually address the structural barriers? Right. And not just looking at this as a surface level of like, you know, do you discriminate on a student by a case by case basis? Right. I think these students obviously need some support services. I needed a ton of them. I came to Howard very academically unprepared. I really don't know how I got accepted there. But I went to tutoring and I had counselors and I had advisors and an array of individuals that supported me and that took the time to really understand my story and what I was going through. And so as a student, if you don't feel that someone genuinely believes in you, you know, we have this saying that you have to connect before you correct, right? And so I think with some of these students, they may be coming from more unstable backgrounds and they may not seem as quote unquote sharp or academically prepared as their counterparts that are coming from better schools and better environments, right? But they are gonna be great nurses nonetheless or, or whatever profession they're going into. And so I think that's definitely an aspect of it. And then I think, you know, you have to walk the walk. I think you have to have individuals of color and historically excluded populations populations in leadership positions, right? You can't say that your school values diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then the top all looks the same. And then we're just kind of at the bottom with our voices not being heard. And so I think you have to really show that representation so that other students can see it, not only that, but also because those individuals are best suited, I believe, to really speak to best practices and what we need to create a better environment for these students. Well, Dr. Miller, in hearing your personal story, I find it incredibly courageous that you found within yourself a sense of determination to overcome your circumstances. Many of those in that exact same situation would be embittered instead of emboldened, whereby adopting a victim instead of a victor mindset 
victimhood is so pervasive in our society right now. I mean, some people spend their entire lives playing the victim, and these people are obviously addicted to outrage. And, you know, Eckhart Tolle describes this old emotional pain that's carried around inside of a person as a pain body, which creates emotions to control our thinking. And a key to overcoming victimhood is to identify these negative feelings when they spring up and don't allow them to warp your response to everyday emotional triggers. And this is a tough but necessary endeavor when the path of least resistance is to drown in your own miserable existence. And it's it's important to point out that researchers do not equate experiencing trauma and victimization with possessing the victimhood mindset. They point out that a victimhood mindset can develop without even experiencing severe trauma or victimization, vice versa, experiencing severe trauma or victimization in life doesn't necessarily mean that someone is going to develop a, a victimhood mindset. So I, I wanted to ask you if you could speak to the this human tendency we have for interpersonal victimhood and why focusing on grievances can be debilitating. I mean, what counsel would you give to someone listening to this podcast interview who's trying to internalize their own hardship in a way that is more productive and life-affirming? That's such a great question, Eric. Thank you. I think that one thing that really helped me was sort of having this ideology of an internal locus of control and really believing that I mostly determine, for example, how my day is going, right? Not things on the outside. And so I developed this philosophy of looking at problems in sort of two different ways that I would either change my perspective on the problem or change my situation, right? And so when I encountered a problem such as, for example, being in foster care, I wasn't overly miserable. Because I spent that time just really plotting and planning what I would do once I got out. But I knew that in the time that I was there, there was nothing that I could do about it. And so I would look around at the other kids who were just really in agony. And I think I just had a different mindset from even early on that, yeah, this does suck, guys. But like, we don't need to cry about it every day because it's not going to change anything, right? And so as I'm looking at situations, I either change the situation if it's within my control, right? Or I change my perspective on it. And I look at it sort of, how can I grow from this situation? What can I learn from this situation? I don't look at things as a loss. I'm looking at them as a lesson and also just as a natural part of the ups and downs of life. And I think that a lot of individuals have difficulty with understanding that there are ups and downs to life. And there's a natural ebb and weave and flow that tends to happen, right? And so I think that we have to do the inner work. We really have to spend time working on ourselves, right? And of course, it's much easier to blame our external situations for how we are feeling inside, but it's much more productive to look inside and figure out what's going on within us. What are things that we can actually change about this situation? And if there is literally nothing we can do to change about the situation, then what can we do to work on our perspective? I love that you brought up Eckhart. I'm a big fan of his work, especially his ego work. And when he talks about that pain body and, and reading that book, uh, or rather listening to the audio book, right? I started to look around and notice that some individuals that have become part of their identity to complain about their job, for example, or complain about their relationship, for example. And I started to think, you know, wow, maybe they just don't really know who else they would be if they weren't that person. If they didn't have those complaints occupying their mind all the time, they would actually have to sit still and dig inside and figure out who they were and what's going on with themselves. And then lastly, I think another big thing is that we tend to internalize our failures. We tend to, and that makes us kind of scared. It makes us scared to take risk in life because we feel like if we take this risk and it doesn't work out, and nothing, then it just doesn't work out, right? Then you learn from it and you grow from it. But I think if we internalize our failures too much or even our successes, right? If we are riding too high on that external validation of success, that can be just as dangerous, right? As, as looking at those failures. And so I think we have to realize that we are the constant 
and that life will go up and down and have its failures, but we at our core do not change. And that takes a lot of inner work. And I think that's kind of where we, we need to work towards growing as, as humans. I really appreciate that perspective. And it brings to mind one of my favorite quotes. It's from Jay Sidlow Baxter. It's as follows, quote, what is the difference between an obstacle and an opportunity? Our attitude toward it. Every opportunity has a difficulty and every difficulty has an opportunity, end quote. I really admire your courageous approach to life. It embodies what many of our listeners out there who are leaders in the value-based care movement are feeling that there's this high rate of failure along the path to value transformation, especially in the early adoption phase. And these leaders have to foster a culture that reflects a willingness and a readiness to flex with these changing circumstances. And in achieving the aims of value and equity and health, there really has to be an appetite for experimentation and a recognition that failure is not fatal. How can our listeners out there who are tirelessly working to advance the aims of value-based care better embrace failures so that they can quickly identify roadblocks to success, overcome them, and learn from these experiences to better embolden them in their transformative work? And from a personal perspective, can you share what you've learned from mistakes on the road to success and how you've applied those lessons that you've learned in order to fail forward? That's a, that's a great question. I think my answer may be a little, a little unexpected, but I think the first thing that we all have to do, and this is anyone that is working in healthcare or working as advocates um, or working towards some sort of change, is that I think we always have to do the work inside to make sure that we are okay, right? That we are not getting burned out, that we are able to set emotional boundaries at work and with the work that we do, because that allows us to better show up. It allows us to have more stamina in this field rather than like going so hard and killing yourself for this cause for the next five years. I'd much rather you do what you need to do to pace yourself out so you could do it for the next 50 years, right? I think the longevity and the stamina and the continuous appetite for change is what is needed, but sometimes because we're not able to set those boundaries and we're not able to do the self-reflection on how we feel about failures, how failures internalized within us, what was our message growing up surrounding failures, how do we overcome failures, and, and as you said, use them as opportunities. If we are also not doing that, I think it's difficult to do this kind of work without doing a lot of inner reflection. And so I will say that that is one one thing that I've done to, as you said, better identify failures and create more initiatives and fail forward is really just approaching it in that manner. And then to speak to your second part is what have I learned in terms of failing for? One thing I learned was from my, my, actually my little sister who owns a business, a professional development business for Black people in the workforce, is she always says to like fail fast and learn quickly. So she just kind of has this philosophy of understanding that the first time you go about something, likely you will not be successful, right? And the first time you implement something or go after initiative, right? It, it may not go the way that we expect, but we, as we said, we are going to always use those failures as the learning. We tried this initiative or we tried this approach and it didn't work. Great. That's awesome. Now we know that this thing doesn't work and that gives us a sharper focus now to create another initiative that can better address the population or the change that we're trying to make. Thinking about this change that we're trying to make in improving population health outcomes, addressing health equity, providing lower cost care that enhances the patient experience and provides better clinical outcomes. I really wanted to direct our conversation. How do we do that with the most vulnerable in our society? I mean, we need to ensure health equity by reducing disparities in care among different populations. And this often occurs as a result of institutional racism. At this moment in time, we have these two historical events that are clashing together as one. I mean, we have this catastrophic public health crisis and resultant economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we also have this continuing plight of racial injustice in our society. And it seems to me that both of these events have really put a spotlight on health inequities within communities of color. I mean, there's never been a, any period in American history where the health of 
African-Americans was equal to that of whites. And disparity almost is built into the healthcare system. And we see that in adverse health outcomes in the African-American community. And the public health data on this is irrefutable in that routine medical practice continues to treat black and brown patients differently from white patients. And this must be changed if we're truly to transform our healthcare system and improve outcomes for all. Can you provide your perspective on how we can create a better sense of health equity in our system? I mean, how do you see healthcare changing in the future to better address social barriers through community-based interventions and the impact of institutional racism on social determinants of health? Absolutely. So much to unpack here, right? Because as you said, we are definitely dealing with this catastrophic pandemic, the economic fallout, and this persistent health equities and diverse disparities that we see in certain populations. And I think we are all hopefully now at a, at a consensus that something needs to be done. And we should know that I believe it's 2050, right? By 2050, over half of our population will be considered people of color. And so we know Know that we have a growingly diverse patient population and we need a healthcare workforce that is prepared to take care of them. And so I think one thing that we really need to do is, is starting with how we educate the students. Actually taking it a step before that, it starts with more intentional recruitment and retentional practices to ensure that our student workforce, which will become our you know, healthcare workforce, reflects the population that they serve. And when you do that, I mean, there's so much underrepresentation. I mainly know nursing. There's an underrepresentation of African-Americans and Hispanics, et cetera. And so our workforce doesn't typically look like the patient population that we serve, right? The workforce is later going to become the individuals that set the healthcare policies. Um, they're going to become the providers and things like that. And so we don't have that population from the beginning um, that is diverse and equitable, diverse and reflective the community, that's kind of where it starts. So it's not just who we let in the door, it's also how we educate them. And so that's going back to making sure that these healthcare programs are actively anti-racist, making sure that they are being proactive in addressing uh, structural racism and making sure the students have a social justice lens to them. And I see that happening in a lot of great nursing programs and, and medical programs is that they need that social justice awareness and training. They need a vulnerable populations class, several of them, right? And they need to be knee deep in understanding health disparities from a very systemic level. And I think sometimes when we teach nursing students and uh, specifically nursing students about social determinants of health, sometimes we can do more harm because sometimes we perpetuate the stereotypes if we're only addressing it at the surface. So if we keep teaching nursing students, wow, African-Americans have such high rates of hypertension without addressing anything systemically, such as why their stress levels may be higher and the daily discrimination that they face, how housing policies and practices over the years have contributed to the homelessness or the low income that we see, how the education system, the prison system, the healthcare system, the mental health care system, how all of these things impact, and then the end result, right? How diet and access to fresh foods, Etc. And so I think if we just continue to teach that surface part of just these are the health disparities and, and, we, and if we're not looking at racism itself as a social determinant of health and making sure that we bring the students up that way, um, I think that's where it starts, right? And that's a very long-term plan, I know. And it's hard to kind of know what to do in the interim. But I think, especially with being an educator for the last decade, I really believe that if we put a lot of effort into how we educate the next generation of healthcare professionals and who, who we educate and having pipeline systems and support and mentorship and, and representation at the upper levels, et cetera, that will bring about the sort of palpable and longstanding change that we so desperately need in the healthcare system. I'd like to dive into the racism in nursing a little bit more. It's actually surprising there hasn't been enough of a recognition that racism actually exists in nursing. And there had to be a study conducted 
by the National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing to prove that it's actually a problem. And in the study released early this year, a majority of respondents affirmed that racist acts are commonplace in nursing and are principally perpetuated by colleagues and those in positions of power. Over half, 63% of the nurses surveyed said that they have personally experienced an act of racism in the workplace, with the transgressors being either a peer or a manager or supervisor. The study was conducted to bring truth to what many BIPOC nurses have experienced personally or observed firsthand. If the question is, where is the evidence? Well, here it is. Now that the issue of racism in nursing has been elevated because of the survey, there's really an opportunity for BIPOC nurses to use their collective voices to advocate for change. What do you tell nurses how to start a conversation, an open conversation about recognizing systemic racism when there still continues to be a denial that it even exists despite this evidence to the contrary? For those who respond to incidents of nursing while Black as someone's just using their race card, how can we engage those people in a conversation to foster a better understanding about the presence of racism in our society and in the nursing environment? Absolutely. Such a great question. There is such a long-standing history of racism in nursing and more recently a resistance to acknowledging that. And for example, we are all Florence Nightingale fans. That's what they teach you in nursing school. That's how they bring you up. And when they do that, they really don't expose some of the racist things that Florence Nightingale did. And so this profession was really built on white women and anyone else that does not fit that stereotype or that, that generalization typically experiences a different type of path, right? And as you said, when that study came out, a lot of us just sort of rolled our eyes because we were like, yeah, we've been saying that. But again, remember, when you don't have the representation at the top, the voices at the bottom, so to speak, are not actually being heard. And so I think the conversation has to begin with leadership. I think leadership really has to set the tone for what the shared ideologies of the institution are going to be. And almost in a way of like, get on board or leave, right? And as you're bringing in new faculty, for example, especially in the education system, that you are doing the work and being intentional about understanding whether or not their ideologies align with those of our institution. My university, for example, has a HRSA grant. We have a pretty large workforce diversity grant. And our job over the years now is to increase our recruitment and retention. We've been funded twice. And both of those times, our, our dean at that time and our chair or our director of nursing, both were committed to that work and were com and committed to that ideology of what needed to change. And so that kind of brings all the other faculty on board. And so now, for example, when we put out the call for new faculty or we're interviewing new faculty or the sort of statements, um, maybe diversity statements or things that we want to see from the faculty, right? That starts at the top with those conversations. We have what is called Chats on the Concrete, something I initiated in the fall. And we have these short 30-minute conversations on different topics. Uh, we just had one on Ramadan, uh, for example. We've had them on LGBT, et cetera. And we have them during our scheduled monthly meetings, the first 30 minutes. And what that does is really sets a tone with all the faculty because everyone in this workforce know or everyone in this kind of environment knows that whatever's at the top of the agenda is the most important thing, right? And so for our director of nursing to make that commitment to give us that first 30 minutes to do the chats on the concrete really shows sort of where her priority is and what the priority of our university as, as a whole is. And so it definitely begins at the top with the leader and it begins with with having individuals in those leadership positions who are not afraid to say there is racism in nursing. I say it at work and, and there are still some faces that are like shocked, right? But again, I am chair of diversity. I'm in a position now where I get to create these initiatives, these chats on the concrete, these safe space groups. And that would not have happened without certain individuals um, in that position. As it comes to the race card, this is a really hard one. I'm not sure I have a concrete 
answer for this, but I can just kind of share some of my thoughts. I think some people are always going to be resistant. I think some people live in a world where they have the privilege of not having to think about whether or not certain interactions are based on racism. I remember when I first started at, at my university about five years ago, I made a comment in the faculty meeting. I was like, wow, yeah, every time I drive up, to the faculty parking lot, the attendant who's standing there, it never fails. They're always like, oh, hey, this lot is for faculty only. And then twice, you know, and I'd only been there a few months, I was telling them twice at this university, I've been standing at the podium after class, you know, wrapping up some work. And another faculty member has come in and seen me and said, hey, students can't stand right there at, at the faculty's podium, to which, all of the other faculty started smiling and they were like, oh, I wish that happened to me. And so I was confused. I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, oh, it's because you're so young, right? And then it made me think about two things. Number one, maybe it is because I'm so young. Maybe I misread that, that situation. But then the second thing it made me think of is, wow, what privilege that you don't have to do that mental labor all the time to wonder, is it because I'm young? Is it because I don't dress as a traditional woman and I have on pants and I have on a blazer and a button down? Or was it because I was black or was it a combination of all three, right? And that you don't typically see this person in the faculty position. And so I think in that moment, I really didn't push back because as you mentioned, the race card, right? I think I did make a comment of just like that is a privilege to not have to wonder but that they could be right that maybe it was my age and so I'm not sure how or if it is even worth addressing individuals that have this mindset that people are just pulling the race card because they don't exist in that world and they have the privilege of, of looking from the outside and so they're like, yeah, I, don't, my, I have a friend who's Black and he never experiences any kind of racism, but they don't see all the other factors that go into like when they interview for jobs, when they're pulled over by the police, when they're walking in certain neighborhoods, right? And so it's easy for them. I think that's a way to deflect as opposed to having to sort of have some accountability, not as an individual person, but understanding how the system that they benefit from harms others. Well, Dr. Miller, I'd like to hear more of your views on how the nursing profession can mobilize around the important issues of institutional racism and health disparities. Advancing health equity is going to require a justice-oriented framework that identifies structural racism's manifestation in medical care and dismantles its grasp on health systems by explicitly incentivizing disparities reduction. You know, to the same, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, they've been very vocal over these last few months about seeing this value-based care movement and having that with alternative payment models as a vehicle to make this happen. And these payment models can advance value and equity by aligning economic incentives to create preferred patient outcomes. However, these payment models will not be enough by themselves. I mean, we need this moral force of professional leadership and nursing to be mobilized around this issue of social justice and health equity. And, you know, we recently saw that in the most recent Future of Nursing report. Just thinking about nurses having to be more outspoken in this modern era and thinking about, you know, how they can advocate for improving social conditions in minoritized and marginalized communities, countering inequities, fighting against structural racism. The ANA elaborates on this further, calling for the nursing profession as a whole to speak out in opposition to the values and ethical code of the nursing profession, which directs nurses to, quote unquote, respect the inherent dignity, worth, unique attributes, and human rights to all individuals. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Miller, how should the nursing profession mobilize around this important issue of institutional racism and health disparities? I mean, what would you say to those who want the nursing profession to stay focused on 
caring for illness instead of demanding societal and institutional reforms to combat racism? Is there an opportunity for value-based payment perhaps to maybe pay nurses differently so they can become more incentivized and empowered to advocate for change and improve on health equity outcomes? I'd love to get your perspective on just this whole future of nursing and being on the bedside, but also being on the front lines of advocating for change in the entire healthcare industry. Absolutely. And I think I speak to what I know best, what is, which is nursing education. And I think that nursing education tends to socialize students to be silent, to conform, and they really sort of lose their voice while they're in nursing school. I think as faculty, and, and I'm not this this I don't feel like this is necessarily the case for other professions. Right? Let's say, for example, individuals who are medical doctors and physicians, they have a very strong advocacy workforce and a very loud voice. But what tends to happen in nursing is that we are socialized to fall within a system, usually a healthcare system working at the bedside, following orders from providers and things like that. And so because that is inherent in our role, and also because we tend to be natural nurturers and caregivers, it's really difficult for the average nurse to really find their voice to speak out on, on certain issues. And so again, I just really feel passionately about the fact that that starts at the education level in the way that we sort of bring up these nurses, these nursing students, the nursing students have to understand that our role as a nurse extends far beyond the bedside. They have to understand that, yes, a percentage of nurses work at the bedside, but that are also leaders and policymakers and change agents and thought leaders. We should be the ones who are speaking and creating the policies for our own profession. And too long, other professions have spoken for us. In the beginning, we were even educated that way. And so now we to break out of that and really teach nursing students how to find their voice. And we do that by getting them actively involved in social justice activities, which we really saw that during the pandemic, our nursing students stepped up, they helped with COVID testing, uh, they went to George Floyd marches and gave out water, things like that. They were really, really involved in things that was going on. Um, and so definitely getting them involved in that way, but also exposing them Right, You have to be very intentional as faculty to exposing your students to the other things that we're doing. As nursing faculty, they all think that we all work in the hospital. I haven't worked in the hospital in like six years, right? So that's why I can't speak too much to the value pay system and things like that. It's, uh, that's not just really my area anymore, but I am sure to tell them things like, for example, this podcast, and I will tell them about what I talked about or different DEI trainings that I'm facilitating at other universities or different talks that I'm doing to child welfare agents, different community service and things like that. And so we have to expose them and not just expose them, but get them actively engaged and involved with this so that they can see firsthand how their voices make an impact. And then on the systemic level and in the leadership level, again, that representation is important, but also how we respond when nurses speak out is also important because nurses that work in a hospital are stifled. They don't have a voice. And when they speak up about things, they're ostracized, they're targeted. They don't want to go through that. And so a lot of people don't speak up. And so I think we have to change sort of the system and how receptive we are to voices because if they listen to the voices of nurses, they wouldn't have had to do a study to find out there was racism in nursing, right? You could have just asked the nurses on your floor. And so I think that's definitely the second part of it is, you know, so once we've educated them to have a voice and to understand that they can work well beyond the bedside in administrative and policy and leadership and research roles, right? And then giving them a voice, especially to the ones that are in the hospital setting and, and being receptive and being intentional about addressing the concerns right there at the bedside. The nurses know the patients the best. The nurses can tell you what our patients need. They can tell you, these are associate and bachelor's prepared nurses uh, with little, little experience in research, and they can tell you 
what a specific population needs just by virtue of them working five years in this community and taking care of this specific patient population. So that's the first place we should be starting, right? I think that as researchers, sometimes we're so far removed from the patient population. And I think we need to learn how to engage our bedside nurses into more research. So utilizing your nurse researchers and your bedside researchers to create more transformative uh, clinical outcomes for our patients. Dr. Miller, I really like what you're saying on this. And you've talked about the nurturing, caring nature of nurses and the relationships with the patients. And in fact, you know, that nurse-patient relationship is really the bedrock of healthcare. And so much of it actually ties into something that you've referenced earlier, which is the cultural competence of the nurse. And when you think of cultural competence in nursing and how it aids the growth and the development of nurses and while also incorporating their societal values for the patient. You know, this concept of culturally competent care implies the ability of the healthcare workers to give the best medical care to patients while really demonstrating their cultural awareness for that patient's beliefs, their race, and their values. And and it entails having knowledge of the patient's cultural diversity and treating them with that mindset. Cultural competence prepares nurses to empathize, to relate more to patients, and attend more deeply to their needs. And hospital patients can oftentimes, as we know, be agitated or stressed and pain and suffering. And and having someone on that care team who speaks their language, understands their unique background, those things can help them relax and lead to a better therapy and overall care. A recent study from the National Bureau of Economic Research showed that sharing a racial or cultural background with one's healthcare provider can help promote communication and trust and actually improve patient outcomes. Can you talk about the need for the nursing workforce and care teams that mirror the ethnicity and cultural attributes of the patient population that they care for? And how can higher education partner with industry to improve the DEI and nursing and support of more culturally competent care models? Absolutely. Um, Another great question with so much to unpack and and first addressing that issue or that notion of cultural competence, right? And whether or not we can truly ever become completely cultural competent, but understanding that a big part of that is self-reflection and us sort of thinking about how we feel about certain populations, the biases that we carry, the origins of those biases, and really actively working through them, right? I don't think it's enough to really ask nurses to empathize. I think sometimes I can even border on sympathizing, right? Like, oh, those poor, you know, such and such patients. Um, But rather, I think there needs to be a deeper push. I think nursing really needs a bigger emotional intelligence aspect to it. And I think that's a huge part of cultural competence and awareness and not just perpetuating stereotypes. When you look at nursing textbooks, there's a bunch of stuff on like, oh, individuals from this background tend to do this. And I think that that can even be a little bit dangerous. But as it relates to the trust, you know, I can think of with my own family members who go to the hospital and go to primary care providers, they tend to have a lot of mistrust in healthcare providers. They tend to associate healthcare providers with the government. In addition to that, you know, we've had a long-standing history of unethical practices towards certain populations, Tuskegee experiment, et cetera. And so, for example, my dad and my grandparents and things like that just tend to have a complete mistrust, right? And so when their provider looks like them, when the nurses look like them, when the person that's doing the health education looks like them. It makes a difference. When I posted that I got vaccinated, my mother called me and she was like, wait, so you think I should get vaccinated? I thought that was just for white people, right? And so family members called me and and I became the reason why they got their vaccine because they trusted that me, just a regular person, I am not affiliated with the government at all, right? That they trusted what I said by virtue of just me coming from their own community. 
And so again, we need more intentional recruitment practices. And that has to really begin with very strong pipeline programs starting very young, elementary, middle, and high school, and really exposing these historically excluded populations to the nursing profession and exposing them to the entirety of the nursing profession and all the cool things that they can do and that they don't just have to work in the hospital, right? And so we need these strong pipeline programs to ensure that we not only get the students that we want, but that they're also academically prepared for the rigor of nursing school, which I will admit is a very, very tough program. And so I think we need those recruitment practices. And then once they're in our institutions, right, we have to make sure we have inclusive practices. We have to make sure that we are supporting them and that we keep them and that we can actually retain them and not just retain them in the academic sense, but also make sure that they have a positive experience where they feel valued and they feel that we have their genuine interests at hand because they are your best recruiters, right? They are going to tell their other friends. And so if they come to our institution and they have a horrible experience, they feel like they're ostracized, um, they feel like they're being discriminated against, when they're around other Black people, they're going to say, don't go to this school for nursing school, right? They're going to be posting that. They're going to be talking about that. And so we have to make sure that we protect those historically excluded populations and that we have specific programs for them. And sometimes that's going to cause pushback. And that's because people don't understand the difference between equality and equity. When I started the safe space groups, there was some pushback. There were individuals who didn't identify as Black but wanted to come into our space. They didn't understand why they couldn't. Right? They didn't even understand the entitlement of wanting to and why that itself was why we needed the safe space. Right? Our campus is about 2% Black students and faculty. And so here was this space where we could gather. It's the only space where everyone looked like us at our university, or rather at our school of nursing, um, and individuals were trying to impose on that, right? And so I fought fiercely to protect that. And then when my students can't come and bring certain uh, incidents to me, I fight fiercely to make sure that we address it and that we go up the chain of command and that the student knows what the outcome was of that incident, right? And so I'm gonna make sure that these black students, and I'm just using them for an example, right? That their experience while they're here is protected so that when they spread the word about the university, that it's a positive experience and that other individuals from their community will want to come. And so I think then, right, we're trickling on down to having a more diverse workforce, having a nursing workforce that looks like the population. And that doesn't always mean, that doesn't mean anything like you have to put Black nurses with Black patients, but just rather that overall at this hospital, this clinic, this healthcare institution, I can look around and see people that look like me. And so I feel safe, even if it's not my particular healthcare provider. Um, and I think that goes a long way as we're seeing with research and improving clinical outcomes. Well, Dr. Miller, I really appreciate the work that you're doing to eliminate barriers and allocate resources and providing equity and access and learning for minority students and students coming from underserved communities. As we think more about the future of the nursing workforce, you know, I, I have a lot of concerns uh, about that. I saw a recent article in Health Affairs, and it showed that there was a decline in registered nurse employment in 2021. It was the sharpest decline we've seen in 40 years, and it was largely driven by nurses younger than 35 years of age. And it was exclusive to the hospital employment setting. And from 2019 to 2021, the RN workforce under the age of 35 shrank by 4%, contributing to an overall 1.8% decline in the total RN workforce for those two years. And of course, we've seen how COVID has exacerbated the long known problem of high attrition among early career hospital based nurses. And then you have like many new graduates experiencing training that was disrupted by COVID. I mean, challenges for these new nurses are aplenty with truncated onboarding and residencies, along with fewer support programs. On top of this, you have those that were once considering nursing as a professional change. You're seeing those that were once considering nursing as a profession change their mind 
because of the images they've seen of nurses during the pandemic, you know, beleaguered, frustrated, exhausted, feeling despair, having damaged skin due to wearing N95s all day. And if that wasn't enough, I mean, you, there was just a news story just a few weeks ago about this travesty of justice where you had a nurse at Vanderbilt University Medical Center that was convicted of criminally negligent homicide for a medication error. While the hospital completely threw her under the bus, covered up the incident initially, and then it ended up facing no penalty whatsoever. And but this this criminal conviction of an individual nurse for a medical error, it's unheard of. And this criminal ruling, coupled with the lack of hospital accountability at a system level, I mean, certainly that could have a longstanding negative impact on the nursing profession since it will erode further workforce morale and cause many to decide not to become nurses. So with all that said, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what needs to happen to make nursing a more attractive profession for the future generation? Yeah, you, you touched on a lot of different things. And I think nursing uh, really took a hit these last few years. Morale has been down. There was really a mass exodus. And as you mentioned, a lot of it was our early career nurses, our new grad nurses. They didn't feel supported in their new grad residency programs. They weren't safe in their new grad residency programs because, you know, they didn't have the experience and the skill level to really withstand the increase in patient load and patient acuity. I think in addition to that, our more seasoned nurses were so stressed and so strained that they weren't able to really tend to the emotional needs of the new grad nurses. And I've long preached about how important that emotional intelligence and emotional support is in terms of determining how successful of a transition a new grad nurse will have. If they feel emotionally supported, and they feel safe emotionally, they are more likely to stay. It's, it's not, you know, just pay and things like that. I think a lot of times we think that just pay the nurses more and they'll all come back. But that's not really like the main reason why they left, right? It was just, un, it was unsafe work environments. It was hospitals not taking accountability, such as in that recent case with the criminal conviction that you mentioned, and not having the emotional support for nurses, right? There's like this whole meme about pizza parties, right? Because every time they think we're stressed out, they give us pizza and we're like, yeah, well, we really like our masks. You know what I mean? What we really like is to be able to take our breaks, right? What we really would like are like more ancillary services to help us with turning patients and transferring them so that we can uh, worry about the more acute things. And so then the question, as you mentioned, is, is will this have a negative impression? And I think at first glance, it does tend to. But a recent report actually just came out by AACM, which is the American Association of College and Nursing, that showed that we saw an enrollment in increase in entry-level programs in nursing schools. And so while, yes, we did have this mass exodus that was because of the early career nurses and how they were feeling, and even some of our later career nurses that decided to just leave earlier, right? And then those that chased the travel money, <laughs> the travel nursing money, right? So we had a couple different reasons why, but we still see enrollment increase. And what that says to me is that none of this has deterred nurses. And I don't think it ever will. We know that we are going into the profession to care for people, just as individuals who go into law enforcement know, right? And so I don't think individuals who are interested in law enforcement are going to be discouraged because the crime rate is going up. No, they're going to be energized. They're going to be like, oh my goodness, that's even more reason. See, this is why I want to go into this. And so I think that if we're not careful and we let the public perception and the headlines and the hot takes rule out what we're thinking, I think that we'll start to get this impression of nursing that's just not true. The fact that we just saw an increase in enrollment on the heels of the pandemic and the mass exodus. Uh, so we can't really factor in this case just yet. It's too early, but I don't really think that's going to have a, a strong impact as well. Nurses will always be driven to go into this profession because we are caring individuals and it's just sort of a drive that we go to. And I think you see that in a lot of professions. You see people who gravitate out to the Ukraine conflict, for example, right? So we don't run from that. When you have that sort of advocacy fighter spirit in you, you go towards it. And so I think what do we need to do? We need to better prepare them emotionally for the emotional stress 
of going into nursing. We have to make them mentally and emotionally strong. When you have a new grad, they're so fragile sometimes, they make a small mistake and you tell them about the mistake. And for some people who haven't done the inner work on what a mistake means to them, you know, when did you first convince yourself that, that you weren't supposed to make any mistakes at all, right? How they view mistakes, for that person, they are broken. And so without that sort of strong emotional intelligence training for both the preceptors and the nurses, they will still see the enrollment and then they'll get to nursing and then they might not stay. So I think that that's definitely a big part of it. And I think we have to make sure that the individuals who precept our nurses, you know, are also have the right training, the right mindset and understand very, very critical for them to understand that their role is not just to show these students or these new grads how to program an IV pump. That is literally the easiest part of your role is teaching them the hands-on skills. They have to teach them how to cope when patients are talking to them a certain way. They have to teach them how to speak up and use their voice to question a provider's order. They have to teach them how to recover when they make a mistake, right? They have to teach them how to set emotional boundaries for when they go home and they leave whatever stressors they have at work at work. And so I think that that is what's better needed. And then lastly, I'll say, I think nurses definitely need more, I don't know if training is the right word, but more awareness of sort of the legal aspects of nursing and how to protect our license and really understand that. I used to work for an LVM program where we used to take our students to see the cases where nurses were trying to fight for their license back so they could hear some of the situations and the scenarios. And not just in a way that scares them, but in a way where they really understand that the hospital is going to look out for the hospital and that they have to do things that they need to do. And so really the answer is knowing when it's unsafe and when to walk away, when to not accept a patient assignment, even that day right now before they're trying to give it to you. Understanding that you protect your license over your job always and that you put yourself in a situation where you're not just dependent on that one stream of income and you're desperate to stay there, but that you understand how to use your nursing license to navigate your career so that you avoid those sort of unsafe situations in the first place. Well, Dr. Miller, I, I cannot thank you enough for joining our podcast this week of, of all weeks of being Nurses Week and such an important time to reflect on the profession. I can't thank you enough and, and just I, I admire all the work that you've done and providing thought leadership, you know, the work that you're doing in nursing education, strategy within DEI, the work that you're doing in the foster care system and, and really advocating for vulnerable populations. It's been a great honor to spend time with you this morning. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, I guess as we wrap things up for this episode, can you provide some parting thoughts on the importance of Nurses Week? And then, you know, how can people follow your work and your thought leadership? Feel free to share some information so people can learn more about the work that you do. Absolutely. So I think we all look at Nurses Week traditionally as an opportunity to thank nurses and to bring a spotlight on our nursing profession, which I think is great. I think intentional Nurses Week would be better than us not getting pizza and flowers and things like that, but rather institutional change that creates better working environments for our nurses. We would rather you take all the money that you spent on trinkets and decorations and pizza and stuff for the week, which really honestly makes us feel like it's more of a show for your hospital, your institution, right? And what we'd rather is if you took all of that funding and got us break nurses so that everyone could take their break without going out of ratio, for example. And so I think when you are intentional about listening to what the nurses needs, what the nurses need, and then making an effort to really address those needs, that would be the best nurses week ever. In terms of my work, I have a book and documentary coming out. My documentary is called Still Waters Never Crash. And actually, literally, we just finished the scoring uh, two days ago. And we're just making some final tweaks. And so that will be coming out soon. With that documentary, we plan to use it as part of curriculum and training 
for child welfare professionals on how to better engage with foster youth and transitional age foster youth to ensure their academic success and just their personal life success as well. So we plan to sort of use it in that way. And another way that I use it is in training nursing faculty and how to engage with students that have come from difficult backgrounds and instability and sort of using my story as an example and explaining how the faculty were really able to ensure my success. So I'm really proud of that documentary. It's called Still Waters Never Crash. And that is also the Instagram. And then lastly, my book is called Versus lessons learned from foster care. Uh, we are now doing the book cover, we're in the editing stage, and it's actually 10 different verses or rather life stories about some experiences that I have in foster care. And then each of these life stories ends with a hook, right? This is sort of a nod to music. And the hook is really this relatable life lesson that anyone can really understand no matter what difficulty or challenges they're overcoming. And I'm really, really excited about that. And then lastly, you can follow my Instagram, which is Doc Miller Speaks. And I've been doing a lot of speaking and consulting roles and working with nursing education institutions and also child for professionals on how to better engage with students that come from backgrounds, not just like myself, but they could have come from any sort of traumatic backgrounds. I want to thank you all so much for having me on. This has been a very, very thoughtful questions, by the way. So this, this really made me think about something. So thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks so much.